0: Slackware 15 release candidate has been released. Yes, it's true, everyone. The, the Slackware release candidate for 15.0 It's official as of August 16, so that was Monday. Pat says in the changelog, Hey, everyone, long time no see. No, I wasn't out fishing. Sadly, I haven't had a fishing rod in my hand even a phishing license in my wallet for this entire season, but there may yet be a chance for that this year. Along with the usual suspects, I've been trying to clear out the list of things that needed to get done in order to reach the standard of excellence demanded from a Slackware release, and I think we've gotten it pretty close. GCC has been bumped to version 11.2.0 because we can't send this out two versions behind, and everything was verified to build properly or fixed up so that it did. I don't see any benefit to another public mass rebuild, so we're not going to do one. Anyway, without further ado, here is Slackware 15.0, release candidate 1. Consider most things frozen, and the focus now to be any remaining blocker bugs. We'll more than likely take that next Plasma bug fix release, But it's soon time to get off this treadmill. Enjoy. So that was on Monday, August 16, 2021. You're listening to the GNU World Order. My name is Klaatu, and today we're going to go through some listener feedback. The first one is from Matthias. He says that in some episode, I mentioned that I work from home. And he said, do you care to elaborate on this topic? He says, in my experience, German companies do not offer jobs of this kind. They seem to need at least some kind of meet and greet at some point uh, in time instead of, do this trivial job well for a start, we'll build trust, and then we'll hire you, that sort of thing. And yeah, that's kind of been my experience as well, really. But obviously, eventually, I got a a job working, as they say, remotely. So um, I, I told him in an email that this probably deserves a whole episode, but I'm going to try to spare you an entire episode of this. But at the same time, you know, there's that crossover point of when you say something casually, and someone asks you about it, and if you treat it too lightly, then it almost seems like you're withholding information, like you're not willing to share your secrets or something like that. And uh, while I don't by any means believe that I've come up with any kind of groundbreaking um, key to some kind of big puzzle, um, obviously I've, I've, I've attained... Something, and I want to be open uh in 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 how I achieved that so here's my story. We'll go with a little bit of a backstory because I do believe that the backstory leads up to the thing that I was looking for, and I have to say this has been pretty calculated. This was not all done by accident. I don't exactly remember the specific point that like it became a goal, but it was pretty it was pretty early actually. So we'll start out by just kind of saying very quickly and broadly that I went to film school thinking I wanted to work in film. I dropped out, and I tried getting jobs instead, and I mostly failed. Film, as it turns out, is a really hard industry to get into. You have to be very social. You have to be uh, really good at uh, sort of personal networking. I am not those things... I would do really, really well on set, but people would either take credit for what I did, believe it or not, or or it would just get looked looked over as sort of one of those things that was supposed to happen. It happened, great, let's move on. I don't feel like I ever quite got the skill of being able to kind of, I don't know, tra- take credit for what I'd, what I'd made possible and sort of get onto crews and things like that. So it just didn't really work out for me very well. But in around maybe, let's say, 2006... I made a little bit of a name for myself in a local little community uh, in Los Angeles about being sort of the guy who could convert your movie files. Like that was my big claim to fame. And people knew it and people would refer their friends to me and so on. And the people that I was helping were largely uh, music video directors, movie directors, and so on, or editors because they needed to get what they called their reel, R-E-E-L assembled so that they could go get more jobs. And the way that they were going to get their reel put together was to bring it into an application on Mac OS that sort of was a big deal at the time. It had kind of changed the editing industry. And so everyone was trying to use it, but the problem was that this application well, it was an application by Apple running on Mac OS. Of course, its problem was that it could barely recognize any file formats whatsoever. It just was not very sort of inviting. They wanted you to use everything only approved by Apple. And so I was the guy who could take whatever format of digital or non-digital movie you had and convert it into a digital format that this application could edit. Well, I, I learned that trick because I had stumbled across an application called FFmpeg. You may know FFmpeg. I certainly know FFmpeg. It's a famous video conversion tool, open source. I'd stumbled across a really, really bad gooey version of it. Someone threw a gooey around it, sort of, and published it on what I was using at the time, which was Mac, and I discovered that it was quite a powerful tool. And coincidentally, around the same time, I had opened a magazine called The Trade Magazines. It was about the film industry, and I was reading a a story about Jurassic Park, and some guy named Joe Letteri was being interviewed, or maybe it was Phil Tippett. It was either Phil Tippett or Joe Lettery, was being interviewed, and they were saying that it was very exciting, this new Unix thing, because you could render your movie files, your your the animations that you were doing, you could render them in, in this application called Shake, uh, which was later purchased by Apple as well, and then summarily killed. You could render it in this application without actually opening the application. And that idea, that concept, blew my mind. They were also talking about render farms and how they had all of the computers in their in the building helping to render this file and all these other things and I just thought this is amazing because at the time I was doing a bunch of file conversion like I was breathing file conversion that's what I was doing all day and literally all night I would I would run tests all night just to see like what would this setting do what what did that setting do and I did that for every single option practically in ffmpeg and so I was that was very much what I was interested in And the idea of being able to do this without opening a GUI application and and being able to do this across several computers, actually getting those CPU cycles contributing to that task, just It just made me very, very interested in this concept. That's what put me onto Unix, and I started learning Unix around then, around 2006, maybe a little bit earlier, who knows. But I, I started learning Unix, and uh, as I was learning Unix, I started learning different commands. And there was a, a command thing on some website somewhere saying that you could play Tetris in a terminal. And so I learned how to do that. Of course, it turned out to be Emacs, and you would launch this thing called Emacs, and then you would hit this weird combination of k- keyboard shortcuts, and you would type in Tetris, and it would launch Tetris, and you could play it in the terminal. And it was really funny and, and fun, and w- what a weird and wacky thing that was. And once I learned that, I realized the true power of a terminal. And I realized, just from that sort of that little demonstration, which I did just so that I could... I could entertain myself while other things were happening on a computer. It just seemed like a terminal was lightweight enough that you could sort of safely do that while your computer was otherwise rendering files or whatever. So I um I sat down and or, or rather I realized that the the terminal was almost a computer in itself. It had applications inside of it. It wasn't an application. It was a it was a window into something. It was a shell around something bigger. And so I started reading a book, Quick Start Guide. I think it was called Quick Start Guide. Peach Pit Press, I think. Quick Start Guide to... Visual Quick Start Guide to Unix. People used to make fun of me for that name, for the title when they saw the book, because they said, what's visual about Unix? Um, and it was a great book. Really good. Probably, probably still would recommend it. I don't know what edition I read. It was a long long time ago now, so who knows. But it it was a great intro to Unix, and it's kept mentioning these things called, this thing called Linux. And I had already kind of started understanding a little bit about open source, because after I played Tetris in Emacs, I kind of kept poking around and stumbled across the GNU manifesto. And reading that was just another eye-opener for me, because I realized that software that you got for free on the internet it it wasn't just about being conveniently free on the internet it was it had this larger idea behind it about sort of open access to programming open access to knowledge open access to all of these different things so i discovered free software and open source through literally through emacs and through the gnu manifesto and through the gpl reading all that stuff it just that was that was the thing that that introduced me to all of these ideas in a very succinct kind of two-file, three-file, or, you know, two files in an application, or two applications away. It laid it out all for me. And so I got very interested in Linux at that point, and finally started and and finally tried um, a couple of different Linux distributions. I think the the actual first one that I ever booted into, I I borrowed a, a laptop from someone. A, a PC laptop because at you the now at the same time a lot of things were converging here right so at the same time uh, at this point my my computer the the computer that i was really relying on for you know to make my living this was the i think it was a G4 tower that i'd upgraded there there was a third party who sold cpu upgrades for a G4, I believe it was. And so I upgraded that to, like, as fast as it could get, and I maxed out its memory. You know, I'd, I'd done everything I could. It was just not keeping up in 2006 or whatever it was. And so I was keenly aware that I needed a new computer and that I did not have a job other than converting people's movie files, which, you know, did pay well here and there, but it wasn't consistent so I was keenly aware that I was going to need a new computer and I just kept thinking I cannot continue to invest money in these these Macs because they're just they are too expensive they don't last long enough and they don't appear to be as flexible as I would like them to be and I was raised on Macs so Windows was not an option that just didn't even enter my mind I mean it might have like flashed in my mind for a moment and I did notice that a lot of times the computers were Relatively cheaper here and there, but they were still pretty expensive. And after you got all the software, it was going to pump bump, bump it back up. So Windows just didn't seem like a a valid option for me. And so I decided to continue to investigate this Linux thing, which I at the time kind of felt was a sort of a a graduation or a a um, yeah a graduation from Mac OS, because I thought well Mac OS is essentially Unix. And so this isn't exactly walking away from macOS, it's just sort of, it's sort of going to a distant relative for the holidays. So I, I tested out Linux on a, I borrowed a, a PC laptop from someone, and I believe the first Linux distribution I ever actually booted into was, um, Mandriva 2007, I think. Or 2008. It's one of those two. That they, and I remember Mandriva always did a weird numbering thing where they would they would name the version of their release... What was it? Well, I guess for the year to come. Yeah. So it felt weird, because it'd be like the end of 2006 and, and 2007 would come out, and then, and then you'd have something like that. I don't remember. Anyway, I think it was Mandriva. And uh, it just, again, blew my mind. Like, this was a series of discoveries that I just had not anticipated... It just it made no sense i i was i I, re, I remember booting into Bandriva and seeing those little yellow stars and just thinking that you know and just sort of feeling that this was an operating system that wasn't produced in a big flashy company in the northwest of the of the USA like this was something different this was something that some small company had made somewhere and and beyond that, a bunch of just Random people were contributing to. I mean, that that felt so powerful. It was kind of like when you hear your first independent band. Maybe you know, like when you're a teenager and you realize that all of the pop music on the radio is just kind of by invisible f- sort of f- entities, corporate entities, and then you hear and see and meet your first independent band, and you're ju- you're just, you you just it just kind of opens up a whole new world, and you realize that things are are possible just here, on the ground, among the normal folk. Um, and it's a very exciting discovery, and that's, that's kind of what Linux felt like. It was kind of that the, the little independent indie punk band that you hear at your local uh, club rather than at the local stadium. So anyway, back back in like 2007, 2008, whatever, I happened to do some conversion for a guy who happened to work at a fairly large computer company located in California and he got me hired there to prove that Intel chips could render video footage faster than RISC chips. They needed, the the company that he worked for and that I was about to work for, needed a business case to switch from RISC to Intel. And part of that business case, they, they wanted to prove that Intel could render video faster. So I designed a bunch of tests, whether it was just rendering video straight, you know, just straight up rendering video, um, or processing 3D models, or just calculating Fibonacci or, and prime numbers, you know, that sort of thing. It was just a, a bunch of different tests to try to prove that these Intel chips, that this new Intel chip, the dual core, whatever it was, could, core two duo, I guess, uh, could, could render faster than whatever RISC chips they were using. And the RISC chips were about four years older than the brand new Intel chip, so you'd think that it would be a pretty easy thing to prove. Unfortunately, or I guess fortunately for Risk, um, unfortunately for the business case, I was not able to f- prove that Intel could render video faster than Risk. Uh, in fact, the four-year-old Risk chips outperformed Intel. I, or either, either, either it they equal the the performance was either equal, or sometimes Intel was just nominally better. And I'm talking about like you know one second faster or something like that you know it was like it, it was not worlds away by any means so i'd submitted those findings to my boss and the project sort of fell apart they realized that they were not going to to be able to establish the business case that they were looking for at least from this line of investigation and uh, they reassigned me to a different uh, project I, I did some qa for a while uh, and i mean that was a fun gig but it, it wasn't really that great. We, we, I wasn't getting to use any open source practically. I mean, I was, I was using a little open source uh, just in my test lab, but not officially. Uh, so I quit, and uh, I'd saved up some money. So I just, I quit and decided that I was going to not take work. I was not going to take a job until I found a job that had me using Linux all day, because by this time I'd realized that Linux was the way that I was going to, I guess, build a career for myself. Like, that was the path that I wanted to go down, and it was the path that I felt was the correct path to go down. So I, I endured about a year of unemployment, and I pretty much ran through all of the money that I'd saved up, just on normal life stuff, moved to Pittsburgh at the time, and kept looking for jobs, work, looking for work. And sort of in that time, I contributed to Fedora and a bunch of other open-source projects. And eventually, I found a job through... through just a lot of saying no you know like I just just did not take a job it was it was not easy this was a very difficult time because um, I didn't necessarily I mean I'd saved up money from the one gig in California I had saved up money so I was able to live off of that but towards the end I was definitely I, well I, w- I ran out of money and I ended up taking a job now that I'm thinking about it I, I ended up taking a job at at a kitchen. Uh, I was a chef for a while, for probably, I don't know, maybe six months or something, or three months. wasn't very, very long, but I mean, it. I was doing, yeah, I was the, I was like an all-day chef at a, in a kitchen. And uh, living off of that wage for a while, so it wasn't exactly the ideal, it wasn't in tech at all, but it, I had to do it. So I, I guess... I guess in the end I wasn't able to keep my keep my resolution to not take work until I found a Linux job. Because really I did take I, I took a job as a as a cook. I, I said I was a chef. I'm not I was not a chef, I was a cook. Anyway, eventually I did find a job at a startup that used Linux on the desktop all day. That's all I would do. So I got a job there. I got to use Linux and Solaris a little bit. Linux all day, Solaris just every now and again. And that startup eventually got bought out by IBM. I quit that job and became the IT manager at a film school. So now I was working with Linux all day, but sort of tangentially in the film industry. I mean, it wasn't the film industry. It was the educational arm preparing people for the film industry. But it was it, it had started to come full circle, which... Um, I hadn't exactly expected. And interestingly, it, it was about to get a little bit weirder because... So I spent a good, I don't know, four years or five years at this film school being just working, being their IT person. And, and so I, I sort of started developing this interesting dual set of skills, again, of being really, really knowledgeable in current film technology, and really, really knowledgeable in current Linux technology. And it was because of that that I got hired by a relatively large film company that wanted me to move to New Zealand in order to work on movies, because I knew both film and Linux. And interestingly, this company was being, was run by Joe Letary, who you might recall from the beginning of the story when I first opened up that Trade magazine and found out about Unix. Joe Letterry or and or Phil Tippett, I don't remember which, but I think it was both, and probably a couple of other people were being interviewed about their work on like Jurassic Park or or, or Toy Story or something, and and were talking about about Unix. So here I was, uh, moving to New Zealand to work at the company run by the guy who, in a weird way, first told me that Unix existed. I mean, he didn't tell me himself, but he told. A magazine, and and I read the magazine, so that was that was interesting, and it was all because I knew both Linux and film. So anyway, that got me to New Zealand, and it got me working sort of in a a very professional capacity, and that lasted for a little while uh, until I saw a job come up at a rather large IT company, not based in New Zealand, and instead based in North Carolina in the US and so I applied for that job and that was a remote job it was advertised as a remote job. It was a it was a job that did not require me to go to any physical location, and I mean that was it, right? I mean that was the thing. That was what I wanted. So I latched onto that job. I applied for it. I got in, um, in no small part because I had already been contributing to Fedora and a bunch of other open source projects. So I feel like I had a lot of contacts, sort of on the inside, as it already. So I did get like a reference from someone inside, you know, I I I didn't just blindly apply. I had been applying to this company for, you know, once every year for the past 5 years um and and that year whatever it was like 26 no 2017 or or whatever it was. That year happened to be the right year for me to apply and get a job. And that's where I've been ever since, and that is a remote job. So, just to review, I was working in one industry, decided to get into a different one, took a year off from work, practically starved, got a job in the desired industry, worked in that industry for a long time, started applying to something better, and just kind of kept working my way up through jobs into some better positions, and finally got a remote gig. Obviously, I wish I could say that this was a recipe for success, by some measure of success, and I recognize that it's probably not. It's just, it's my experience, and that's going to differ between me and you, dear listener, and anyone else. That gives you some idea of, of what the the tactics I used were. I hope some of this might help you if you're in a position of looking for something better. Hopefully, maybe some of these tips or tricks might might be somewhat useful to you. Maybe not. But, um, either way, that is how I how I got the remote gig that I have now. Okay, let's move on to the next... Actually, it's probably time for a coffee break already. Let me see if I can knock out one other quick email here, because there are quite a few. Here's one. Here's one from Hacker... Hacker Defo. Hacker... Hacker Defo. Hacker Defo. I don't know. Um... I gotta figure out how to say this person's actual name. I'll I'll have to email and ask. So anyway, HackerDefo emailed me and said he was fiddling around with the the utility Trashy. It's a great little tool for sure. I don't know where I got it, but it's uh, th- but I've got a little script for a few years now, which is pretty similar to Trashy. I'm attaching that file for you. Uh, you might find it useful. Who knows? The same concept is being done by the same tool. It's Bash. So, but but it could be interesting. He attached a, a, a tar ball, and I took a look at it, and I gotta say, it is a really nice, clean script. You know, it's just so nice. It's by someone named Tri Lee, T-R-I-L-E, copywritten 2012, GPL Bash script, trash, version 0.4.0, and it is just a really nice, clean script. It really is. The, I guess, the problem with it is that it doesn't exactly work. So I, I did, I, I, I tried running the, 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 script, well, here's, here's, so I'm untarring it, and, uh, change directory into the, into, into trash dash 0.4.0, and then I'm doing a dot slash trash, no, not yet. I'm, I'll touch a file called foo bar. And now I'll trash dot slash trash foo bar. And then dot slash trash dash dash restore, which is the restore function, uh foobar. And it says foobar.trash dot trash info, no such file or directory cannot restore foobar due to missing original file path. So something's going on with the way that it's restoring, or I should say not restoring the the, the a file from the trash and I, I will say that I think of the so trashy my utility first of all it's a lot messier the, the the bash script is is not super clean it's not the worst thing in the world it's not the greatest thing in the world but but trash the the idea of sending something to a trash that that's a specification defined by the free desktop organization freedesktop.org the trash specification is defined by free Desktop. And I think the hardest thing about that specification, at least for quick-and-dirty kind of scripts, is the, the trash info, the concept of data about a file that got sent to Trash, trying to track where that file came from. It's, it is by no means impossible, and I, 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 Trashy could be doing a better job of handling that. Obviously, Trashy is apparently doing a better job at handling that than this trash script from 2012 has done, because that just doesn't seem to be working at all. But it it is that is a tough thing. That's the tough part about the the trash process, because I mean it's it's trivial to send a a, a file to the trash. You literally just send it to uh, your your home directory dot local slash i don't know share slash trash or something like that it's uh, I, I should know this by by heart because it's it's a thing that i interact with yeah it is dot local slash share slash trash that is what it is and in that trash folder you'll see a two two directories called one called files which are the files themselves and then one directory called info which are all of these sort of dot trash info files that describe the the files that you've sent to to the trash And it's relatively easy as it is, but it becomes more complex when you start thinking about possibilities like, oh, well, what if someone sends two files by the same name to the trash? Well, now you've got two files that look like they should collide, but you don't want them to ever collide in trash, because if they're being sent to trash, that's it. They're in the trash. You just want them to happily be in the trash, but then... What happens when you take them out of the trash and that, that that's where it gets confusing so i understand why this script would have failed on that because that's the hardest part and to be fair i mean the script is from 2012 it doesn't look like it's been maintained so th- this is this is not surprising it is still really cool to see another inven- I- I- implementation i did know that there were other implementations out there i mean i know of one uh, in python but Another one in Bash, I, I, I that that appeals to me. Bash appeals to me. Because Bash is such a low barrier to entry, I feel. I mean, Python theoretically is low barrier to entry, but I feel Bash is even lower and has been consistently lower. So I quite like it. The, 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 the problem is that it's not working for me exactly. But I still think there's a lot to learn from this script. So um, I'm going to... I'm gonna hold on to this, because I feel like, yeah, it's just so darn clean, there are some really nice, like, little bash shortcuts that are taken to deal with duplicate names and things like that, so, yeah, this is, this is cool, I'm, I'm really, I'm really glad that that was brought to my attention, thank you very much, Hacker Defo, and coffee break. (laughs) It's a Sumatra blend, single-origin Sumatra is what I was told. It comes from a coffee shop in Dunedin, which is on the South Island of New Zealand, about an hour from where I live. 36 Moray Place, that's what it's, that's where it is, it's called Mazagran, M-A-Z-A-G-R-A-N. Don't know what that means, but it's a coffee shop that I had been meaning to go to for Years, maybe not year, eh, maybe two years, and uh, ever since I heard about it, because they they roast the coffee beans on the day, right in their store, and you can go get the freshest of fresh, freshly roasted coffee. And I was, I just happened to be at like I've been in Dunedin before; it's pretty close to me, so I'm I'm there not regularly, but on occasion, and it it was always closed. It would always just get there at the wrong time, but this past weekend, I guess, I was there at just the right time, and it was open, and I saw, we were walking by, I think, in the, early in the morning before they were open, and I saw the person in there roasting the coffee beans, and so I was sure to come back at 10 or 11 or what, whatever time it was that I finally got there, and was able to purchase a bag of, well, a coffee, first of all, to, to drink there, which was, which was great. I just had Americano black really nice rich coffee and bought a bag about 200 grams of this sumatra uh coffee beans and it's really really good nice rich deep flavor not not too not too dark but but nice and 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 deep that's that's the that's the term i'm i'm using for it it's just a nice rich kind of smooth flavor uh maybe not smooth maybe just earthy you know It's, it's really good anyway Highly recommended if you happen to be in New Zealand, happen to be in Dunedin, happen to be near Mazagran, pick yourself up a bag of their Sumatra single-origin coffee. I think I'll continue the listener feedback with some email from Tim. Tim says, Ahoy, Klaatu. In episode 419, you lamented multiple times that Gaia lacked the up-arrow-control-P ability to recall previously issued commands. Yes, I did do that. I did lament that. Tim continues, the rlwrap package wraps input from standard in to any program to provide read line key bindings and history. So you can launch guile, and your REPL read eval print loop should now have read line support. It works with anything that reads from standard in, so you could even add, it, add command history to the text editor, ed, dot ed, example.c. The man page should provide a number of details on how to get wrap to provide additional functionality, but it's a great little tool to have in your tool set. Thanks for all the GNU World epis- uh, New world Order and HPR episodes. Thank you, Tim, for that feedback and for telling me about this amazing tool. So it turns out, dear listener, if you've never used wrap, that it is as, it, it is exactly as Tim advertises. It's a brilliant little tool, so if I search for it in On Slack Builds, it looks like it is contained On Slack Builds, so that's convenient. And if I look at the requirements, it doesn't look like it does have requirements. I mean, beyond what Slackware installs anyway. So for, for, for me, this is um, no requirements. Obviously, if you were using a distribution that maybe, I don't know, didn't ship with something, you might have different requirements. But I'm going to install it right now. And then I'm going to once it's finished here, yep. Um, then I'm going to try it. RL wrap got guile, and there's my little um, REPL prompt. So I'll do a, a very simple thing. I'll just do plus one one turn. Tells me that that's two. So now I'm going to hit Control P, and there it is. The same prompt, or the 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 history rather. Oh wow, quite a long history. Well, that's that's fantastic. Um, I don't remember how to get out of there. Oh, control D. So that's a really, really cool command. How amazing is that? It just inherits read line. Wow, that is nice. I mean, yeah, that that's really, really useful. So that's RLwrap. That's R-L-W-R-A-P. Look for it on github.com slash hanslub42. That's hanslub 42 2 very very useful and and even if you're not using it for guile, I could, as Tim says, you could you could envision yourself see you could see yourself using that with something else, w- whatever application you're using that doesn't have that functionality. Wrap it in RL. So thanks, Tim. That's a great tip. Okay, now I have a couple of emails from Hacker Defo, and these are really great emails. They're a little bit long. They're 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 quite thoughtful. So uh, I'm not going to just I'm, I'm not going to read all of them. Like I'm not gonna read the whole email because that would be I think that would go on, but I, I want to hit the main points because they're 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 great points and inspire at least a little bit of discussion. So skipping over the first couple of paragraph or first two paragraphs, um, Hacker Defo says, now coming to whether AOS can be considered or called a remix or a spin or an independent entity. My view is if anything can can something survive. Without its parent entity for a considerable time. If so, then and only then can it claim that it is independent. So the question becomes: Can AOS survive without Slackware? And the answer would probably—I feel like probably—the answer would be no. I don't think there would be an argument. I could be wrong, Kevin. I'm not speaking for Kevin, but I'm, I'm going to assume that Kevin would probably say, "Yeah, it couldn't. It wouldn't survive without Slackware because that's that's its base." So I think it, it would probably be fair to at least say that it is derivative of Slackware. And that kind of leads me to a different thought entirely, which is, you know, there's not really any... I, I feel like the conversation that got started between me and Kevin about AOS was largely because I called it a spin or a remix. And really, that's that's kind of... D- does it even have to be called a spin or a remix? I I believe, and you can email me, dear listener, if if you remember... Cr- in. Uh, differently, but um, I believe that before before Ubuntu started calling their their remixes a remix, I believe it was just like when things would be based on something else, it would just be based on, you know, like th- there was no fancy term in other words. So you might hear about, I don't know, Mepis or something, and you might say, oh, that's based on Debian or, or whatever. Um, I, 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 Mepis might have been post-Ubuntu, I don't know, but let's just you know whatever think of think of a of a distro that predates ubuntu and and think about how things were we just said oh, it was based on such and such so there was no fancy term like remix or spin that just didn't exist so maybe that's not even a useful conversation to have and maybe it's a conversation i've i've more or less forced upon us because i said it um which yeah quite possibly that's just we don't need to differentiate that much because those are terms that that two specific distros kind of came up for their for their users to understand how their, their their variants of their os were structured and you know slackware has never said you know has never branded anything in any way so um i mean it hasn't branded its sort of derivatives in any way and so maybe maybe that's just not terminology that we necessarily need which i think is an argument. I think there's an argument there that we don't need to call things a remix or a spin or even derivative. It's just here's the the basis for this thing and I'm adding my scripts to it or my 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 applications to it. I'm I'm bundling it up and sending it out, which is is very very much a great great thing to be able to do. And we can only do it because it's open source. Now, obviously there's there's always going to be the the desire among us humans to kind of classify things and and quantify and qualify things, so at some point, I think yeah, the discussion does exist like is it independent of this thing if we take this thing away, can we can is 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 slackware propping this thing up? Well, yeah, it probably is right now um and with a lot of distributions i I do kind of wonder like what happens when the support goes away um and and how you know how quickly can you sort of uh, adapt and i guess for myself you know I'm, I'm, i think about those sorts of things often because i mean we all know change is part of life that's just something that happens so you, you do have to kind of think about that sometimes you think well what would happen if if, if my favorite distro made a change that i i, I don't care for like, what would I do? What's my What's my plan B? And and it's an important question to ask for both the users and the maintainers, obviously, because, yeah, if, if something that you're relying on disappears, what do you do? Well, how easy is it to pivot and to take those scripts and applications that you're bundling with this thing and then bundle it with something different entirely? And I think for Slackware, a lot of people sort of see probably Arch as the nearest cousin. Um, and, I mean, I know Arch is also considered a very close cousin to Gen 2 as well. But, you know, half a dozen... Six of this, half a dozen of the other, right? I mean, Gen 2 and Slackware are often kind of considered within the same branch as well. I mean, they're not, but, I mean, they're... I guess they appeal to a certain... the the same sort of audience. So, yes, how how difficult is it to pivot? And, yeah, you have to keep that sort of thing in mind. It's a good thing to keep in mind. It's a good thing to kind of keep, I think, to stay up on what's available and what state those things are in. I like to look at BSD sometimes. I like to look at CentOS sometimes. I like to look at, at 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 the progress of of other distributions just to kind of just to look at them, you know, keep evaluating because you never know. Things change. Whether whether the distribution changes or whether you're just you change. Your your needs or or wants might change. So it's always good to sort of recognize, I guess, that that yes, there's a dependency here, and that's okay, or I'm not comfortable with that, so I'm going to make sure that I'm, you know, keeping a, keeping tabs on something else. It's just an important conversation to have internally as well. Hacker Defo then says, Bug reporting, my view is simple. You should file a bug report if you can. The Bhagavad Gita recommends working without attachment to the fruits of our activities, without attachment to the result. Of course, we mere mortals can't do it all the time, but we can keep it in mind at least while reporting bugs. You inspired me to file my first bug report. I was testing Magia and tried installing Git Cola on it, but it had a few unmet dependency issues. Now, I was just playing around with Magia and wasn't going to keep it for long, but still, I filed a bug and... It got resolved. Uh, this is Klaatu again, and yes, he is correct. He even sends me a, a little link here that I can, uh, maybe I'll put in the show notes or something, because this is really cool to me. It's it's nice, I think. I think the, the more bug reports you file, I think the more disconnected you become to this. Possibly not, but for me, I think that's that's true. You kind of lose track of like what the success rate actually is, and so having a bug that one can actually point to and say, look, it does sometimes work, is really nice, uh, and this this bug identified that while installing Cola on Magia Cauldron 64-bit, uh, there's an error about, sorry, this package cannot be selected, Cola 392, due to conflicts with lib64-qt5-web-engine-core. Uh, and then it actually drills down a little bit further into lib-icu-i18n, which is something that I guess the web engine depends on and can't be satisfied. So it's a bug. There, there's something is wrong with the sort of the tracking of these required packages. And uh, it someone responds and says that the fix is in the build system uh, over at this place and uh, should be available by the end of the day. Done. Resolved. Fixed. So pretty neat. Pretty cool. Um, it's just nice to see results like that because as I've said, sometimes it does seem a little bit discouraging, as if though a bug report just gets filed away and and sort of forgotten. And obviously it depends on the project, it depends on their workflow, it just depends on their priorities, it's just, it's part of the deal. But the good thing is, at least for me, is that in open source you have the ability to at least file the bug, and you have reasonable confidence that someone is going to address that bug. They may not fix it, they may not know how to fix it, they may not think that, it, that it's bad enough of a bug to have to be fixed, maybe they don't even think it's a bug, but the, the communication is there. And when it's not open source, you, you sometimes... you might have some access to sort of a development team, but not, not usually. I mean, you, you usually the best you can do usually is some kind of official forum where you can voice your displeasure over something, and maybe some other users will give you hints and tips on, on how to resolve it, but, but generally you're not speaking to someone who actually has the power to resolve the thing. And generally, there's no reasonable expectation that your complaint is treated as something to resolve. It is just a complaint. With open source, it's always something to resolve, whether it's marked as won't fix, not a bug, or resolved, or fixed, That's that can be variable. But that bug report is being filed with the development team as a development task, and that's a big deal. Here's something different. This is very cool. So on Mastodon, Black Kernel reached out to me and said that they had created a reimplementation of a trash function. Well, I'll just read. I just wrote, read, mostly stole, a beta version for a program based on the idea behind Trashy by modifying the uutils project's Rust implementation of rm. The reason why one might find it useful is because Trashy doesn't handle command line uh, flags the same as rm, so if you try to alias rm equals Trashy, it doesn't always work. This should fix that, as what I am doing is intercepting the parts of rm where the file would be removed and instead moving it to xdg-data-home-trash-files. Well, this intrigued me for, for many reasons, because first of all, the design is so obvious. <laughs> it's just such a good idea. Um, yeah, why why not just take rm and then where the functions say to clear out those bits or whatever it says just don't do that just move it to a location instead such a great idea so obvious and and interestingly this is in this is written in rust which is of course the hot new language that everybody loves and i mean the the uutil project is a very cool project and there are lots of rust projects that are doing some really cool os kind of level utilities, and and just making this stuff uh, sort of basically, you know, re-implementing GNU core utils. And as I've said before, I'm all for alternatives and backup solutions and plan Bs and all of those other things. And heck, I mean, some of these core utils could probably use a little bit of, of revision. So it it's kind of a cool idea. and And to take the RM utility, which I don't know why anyone would be re-implementing that anyway. As I've said before, I don't believe that rm is a useful command. I don't think it's ex- effective at what it does, and I don't think that there's any... It's just one of the worst commands. It really is. As I've said before, rm admits in its own man page or info page that it is not fit for purpose. It tells you not to use rm and to use shred instead, because it, it admits that it doesn't do its job of removing a file. So I don't see I don't see why rm... Should ever be re-implemented, but it's a great idea to take the rm code and essentially transform it into a sensible trash command instead. So I built the command. He he calls it Waste Paper Basket (WPB) and 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 it's a you know it's a, sort of a beta version for sure because I mean it was really probably kind of quickly done or whatever, but I mean. It's really, really nice, and there's a to do list such as add a way to restore the files from trash um there is a framework, but there's no way to operate it yet uh optional add a pass through for shred that's nice. add a way to empty trash from from the terminal uh so like a dash dash empty command or something like that great it's it's fantastic there I found two two problems that i I kind of anticipated, you know like after you work on one of these like i said earlier like you just start to kind of understand some of the 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 difficult areas to look into and and one of those i mean i couldn't test the restore option because as i just said it's in a to do list to to implement that so it doesn't exist yet but the one of the two of the things are well one of the things is file like what happens when you add one file to the trash can when the same file or the same file name rather exists already so I touch, you know, if you touch foo and then trash that, and then touch foo and then trash that, what do you have in your trash can? I think from my experience, and I believe from the free desktop specification, I'd have to kind of look at that again. I haven't looked at it recently, but I'm pretty sure it's in there. From my expectations of, of Linux, I would, I would go to the trash can, I would open it, and I would see foo, and then foo space parentheses one parentheses. That's what I would expect. And with this waste paper basket implementation, as of right now, again, it is a beta version. It's, it's early, early days here. When you do that, you just find one file called foo. So that could be a problem. Like if I if I send something to the the trash bin and it has uh, my to do list on it, and then I send another thing to the trash bin and that had a bunch of um, just nonsense characters, then then I realize oh I shouldn't have trashed my to do list. I didn't get everything done. I want to go get that file again. You you pull that back, and oh my gosh, it's this file of nonsense characters. It's a weird, weird thing about the trash bin, I think, because technically speaking, like, it is a trash bin. It is meant, it's a, a place that you send things that you don't want anymore. So it feels weird as a trash implementer to, or a trash can implementer, or a manager, to have to think about the sanctity of data in the trash can You just don't think that that makes sense and you almost kind of think well it just doesn't matter like if you sent it to the trash that's your fault if it gets ruined like you sent it to the trash in the first place but i mean the point is of the trash can is is to be that buffer between yes i no longer need this and oh actually i still did need that so there is this weird thing where you have to be really kind of overly cautious with people's data even in the trash can and so that's one thing that i think uh waste paper basket could implement and, and maybe it will. Uh, and then the, another issue was that when I trashed a directory, it didn't seem to recognize it as a directory, so the, the wpb-r didn't work the way that I expected it to, which I, I don't really know why. Um, and so I filed two bugs on that, speaking of bugs. And and it's a really exciting project. I mean, it, it really is. It's very cool. I wrote Trashy in Bash because I believe strongly in the accessibility of Bash, but having... and, and well, actually, yeah, and, and in fact, I will point out that the dash dash restore function was not my function. That was a contribution from someone, some to me, a random person on GitLab just decided, I'm going to make your trashy utility better, and they did, and that was really, really cool. So I, I, I like Bash for that, just kind of like anybody can probably expect to read and understand the code, which doesn't exist with Rust. But at the same, you know, when you really think about it, like, the idea of re-implementing RM, of fixing RM, essentially, and making it into a trash utility instead of a a poorly done shred utility, just, that that's really an exciting prospect to me. So, I don't know if Waste Paper Basket's going to be the thing to do that, I don't know if that's even what Waste Paper Basket aspires to be or to do, but... I think it's an exciting idea, and I am definitely going to keep my eye on that, because it's just great. I mean, it's it's a really, really cool... And a lot of the Rust utilities that I've seen have been really, really cool. Um, there are quite a few out there that have really pleasantly surprised me. Not that I didn't expect them to be good, just that they happen to be better than what I expected. So it's kind of an exciting space all these system utilities being re-implemented in in Rust. So check out Waste Paper Basket. I will definitely include a link in the show notes and I highly recommend looking at both it and the code because I mean Rust isn't a simple language. It it's pretty it's pretty out there. Um but I mean compared to bash i guess but um it's nice to see some simple you know this is a relatively currently at least relatively simple application so looking at its code and kind of looking at the structure of the project can be quite educational as well lots to lots to appreciate about this so thanks black kernel that's really really neat and last but not least we go back to hacker defo a different email from hacker defo lots to say but this one is um well, yeah, no, this is actually really interesting stuff. Okay, so anyway, I'm going to just try to hit the highlights again. He's got ideas on how Slackware could be better. He says, he admits he's not a, an expert on Slackware, but here are my personal opinionated recommendations for Pat and Company. And this is in, in response to me having said something about Slackware and its slow and uncertain release cycle. So I may have sounded overly negative if I, it, the, the way I said that. I'm not sure. I don't remember. But, um, if that's the case, I should probably clarify really briefly that, that I actually quite, quite appreciate the slow and uncertain release cycle of Slackware. It is not actually a, a bug. In my opinion, it is a feature. So that said, here's his idea. Here's Hacker Defo's ideas about, uh, Slackware. First, open the doors for new contributors. Slackware currently does not have an official procedure to become a code contributor or developer to the project. Second, open an issue tracking system. Third, instead of one giant DVD, just focus on one desktop environment. Inclu- only include general necessary applications like LibreOffice, Firefox, VLC, and a few system administration utilities. Yes, include the libraries and headers for re- uh, required for compiling stuff, and that's it. Leave the other desktop environments like XFCE and LXCute and Mate and all those other things to the community. Help the community and w- with technical know-how when needed, but leave it up to them to release and update these things as necessary. And then fourth, offload everything else dropped from the DVD over to the slackbuilds.org and help the community in maintaining that stuff. So that's Hacker Defo's ideas about how Slackware could maybe refine its process, with a full admission that Hacker Defo has no idea how Slackware currently structures things, uh, which is fine, because these are really, really great ideas. These are really, really strong, I think. Whether or not they're necessary is a, probably a different discussion. And, and certainly even the definition of necessary would be a different discussion. Because first of all, in order for these to be necessary, you have to admit that you know, change is, is, is required. And I think a lot of people, including myself, to be clear, don't really see the need for, for any immediate change here. Uh, this Slackware is, is doing exactly what Slackware has always done, or, or maybe not always, but ever since I've been using it, this is this is the this is the cadence, this is the way that it is developed, and for for a lot of its users, that's really really fine. Um, I I absolutely appreciate the stability of Slackware. I don't just appreciate it; I rely on it. E- especially with flat packs now, it's even easier than ever before. I mean, really. So yeah, there's just not a whole lot that I feel is is needed in this process. Um, there's a lot to like about the way that Slackware is is maintained by a, a centralized sort of overseer and how the c- community interacts with that group and so on and, and how Slack builds as the community portal into con- contribution and linuxquestions.org is the official forum. So, you know, opening an issue tracking system, I don't know that that's actually necessary beyond what they already have, which is linuxquestions.org. That's the official forum, or rather, Slackware has its official forum in linuxquestions.org. You can speak to the development team through linuxquestions.org. You can speak to the development team through SlackBuild's user lists. So, uh, yeah, SlackBuild user list. So there are, there. maybe from the outside it doesn't seem very open... And that's probably a problem. That is a perception. You know that that that's a problem. Like if if people are looking at you and 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 they can't figure out how to get in, then yeah, I think that would be a problem. And so there are arguments. I think that yes, some things should change, but how urgent it is and 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 how that change needs to happen, I don't know. I think there's. There's a big conversation there, but once you get to the point where you think, well, yeah, it, it could it could get better, it could be better. Let's let's change this. Then then these are really good ideas, and I don't think these these I I don't think these suggestions these four suggestions are super far off what's already being done with projects like Salix OS and what was done for Zenwalk. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not clear on the status of Zenwalk these days, but certainly Salix and and historically Zenwalk and Porteous, That's a good one. And even Slacks before they switched over to the Debian base, Slacks had a similar kind of thing going on. Well, no, Slacks. Well, either way. So there, these are these are good ideas. I think they're good notes on how a project maybe ought to be managed. But I, I do feel like there's a strong sense that Slackware is is in a, is as healthy as ever, and and probably doesn't necessarily need to change in order to make any of its current users happy and i say that with you know very precisely so it doesn't need to change to make its current users happy i think there's a different conversation to be had about how to attract new users how to make sure that the project uh, is resilient and can could withstand the loss of one or more of its development team. Th- there's a lot of conversation around all of that, and ho- hopefully people are having that conversation. Um, I have heard on a on a long time ago uh, an interview on Dave Yates' podcast called "Lot of Linux Link. It's it's links. It's gone now, but. Um, it was an interview show that he did, I think with Robbie Workman, I'm pretty sure. And he asked very bluntly, like, what's the, su- the plan? What's the succession plan? Should Patrick Volterding ever stop making Slackware or become unable to make Slackware for some reason? Like, what, what happens then? It was said in that interview, as I recall, that there is a plan B and that it is something that they've discussed and something that they've planned for. I can't verify that. I don't know. But it, it's apparently something that someone has thought. But as I keep saying, we all know change is part of life. So, you know, if, if Slackware at some point Slackware is going to change, right? It's going to either stop or it's going to change. And and that'll mean something. We don't know what it'll mean, but it'll be it'll mean something is different and hopefully it would be for the better. Um and and who knows, maybe there's something better after that change. But for now, I guess I guess I am I am very complicit and complacent in the fact that I just kind of like Slackware being Slackware. I don't know that it's essential that, it, that the DVD has a bunch of applications, because, to be fair, I don't use a bunch of the applications. But then again, there are lots of applications that I only discovered because they were on the Slackware disk. So, yeah, I guess it's just a balance. It's it's a balance of 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 what would be best. And it's hard to say what would be best, Um, It's really easy to say, well, everything's been working up until now and certainly continues to work, so I guess that's good enough. And and I guess that's more or less where I am with Slackware and have been since, I don't know, 12.0 or 12.1 or whatever was the, the release that I started with. Yeah, so either way, good ideas, good suggestions, a great, great suggestion of how to structure a project, I think and you know it is open source there are there are ways to reimplement slackware with a different development model if one really wanted to do that i mean i don't mean that to be the trite answer of you know open source fork it but at the same time it is it's open source you could fork it i mean it's slackware does very little on its own it it does very little to to polish the ux it 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 mainly packages upstream source code it it packages it and distributes it on an iso that's that's basically what slackware is it's that and a couple of scripts to install stuff onto your hard drive and to start services that's that's the slackware added value other than that it's it's just it's all the upstream packages and i think there's a a huge strength there there's very little distro to slackware and and i like that a lot i mean there's so little distro to slackware that i i think i've mentioned this before but i took slack package, sl- slack pkg, and uh, th- that that being install pkg, slack pkg... No, it was just install pkg and I think remove pkg, really, so it wasn't slack pkg at all. It was install pkg and, sl- and remove pkg. I ported those to Debian so I could use them on Debian on an old iBook G3 laptop that I was running... No, G4 laptop that I was running uh, for years and years and years with, with um, well, the only thing that would install on it at the time was Debian, and so i just took install pkg and remove pkg and used slackware packages to build stuff on debian and i just i just used that and it was great so yeah i think the less distro the better for me and it's it really it's really nice that slackware in a way is is not that complicated and i think that's important to realize too okay next he says fedora silverblue i've not tried it doesn't uh, particularly fit my usage scenario but it's very interesting I'd like to draw your attention to a similar offering from OpenSUSE called MicroOS. It would make for a great podcast, too. Would love your take on the similarities and differences between these two. MicroOS.OpenSUSE.org This was really cool, MicroOS. OS. I, I should do more on this. I, I, I had not heard of it, or maybe I'd heard of it, but I hadn't really delved into it until this email. This email made me actually click a link and go there and check it out. Really, really neat. It is different than Silverblue in the sense that it uses it's it's really its main its main leverage is butterfs btrfs and it is doing really cool things with snapshots like uh, you know file system level snapshots. I I had a a couple of weird quirks with it. I just I just installed it into a virtual machine. I did not install it on a hard drive. Wasn't quite ready to blow away my Silverblue install yet. But I did install it into a virtual machine and and really really enjoyed it. I mean I always enjoy OpenSUSE. I think it's a fantastic distribution. That they, they they have a long term support thing that I really really love. I should I really ought to be using it more often than I am. But I I, I yeah it, it's a nice experience every single time and this was no difference. I had one little quirk which was in order to install stuff. I guess you're supposed to install stuff through your app store. So for me that was KDE Discover. So I launched Discover and I installed Krita and Digicam, because those were the first two featured applications in their little app store thing, so I installed both of those. The first one installed fine, Krita did, and then I, I feel like I installed, I clicked Digicam so I had them both installing sort of at the same time, and that caused some kind of error. I think Krita was fine, but Digicam just kind of had to stop. It, it couldn't. It couldn't install. There were errors, and I navigated away and tried to install some some other stuff, and and all of those errored out. So it was almost as if though you only got to install one thing at a time. So that that felt like a GUI issue. I don't know it, that it was, but that's what it felt like. And then I, I finally, so I got everything in, installed, which was Krita and Digicam in the end had to walk away from the other ones. Closed Discover, tried to launch Krita, tried to launch Digicam. They just it was as if though they hadn't been installed. And I realized then that I had to reboot. So I rebooted and then they were and then they showed up in my in in, in on my desktop. So that's a little bit weird that you would have to reboot after just installing user land applications. That felt pretty that's gonna be that would be awkward, so I imagine that'll have to get fixed at some point like that's just too awkward right i mean that's just that's no good. I mean, even Porteous, which doesn't do all of this fancy stuff, but even Porteous which which and slacks before it, you know you could install something just into a union f s layer and and have instant access to it so i I imagine there's got to be something that they can do to make to make that process a little bit smoother and and certainly with um with Silverblue, you could just install a flat pack and just start using it. Or a tool, a, what a, a sandbox or a toolkit or a toolbox, whatever they call it. Install, you know, start one of those up and then install RPMs into that container and you're good to go. Instantly, the only time you have to reboot is when you're adding like a kernel module, if you'll recall. So that was pretty rough on micro OS, but that's fine. I mean, I, I imagine they're, I'm sure they're either aware of that or... They're aware of something that I'm not aware of, and I'm just not clicking the right button somewhere. Like, maybe there's a, a thing to reload your installed applications after installing them with Discover. I don't know. And I probably could have used... So Discover was in alpha, or uh, KDE was in alpha, GNOME was in beta, and then just the, I guess, the server version of micro os seemed to be kind of what they expected you to install but i wanted to get a silver blue like experience so i could kind of compare them in my head um so that's why i went with a specifically with a gui and i just went with kde because why not i just felt like i've had a lot of gnome in my life lately and i've always been really really happy with opensuse and their implementation of kde so that's the way i went really really nice though a very cool project i'm really glad to have found out about it did not know about it, um, at least not, not a whole lot about it, before this email. And then finally there is, oh not finally, um, I'm going to skip around a little bit in this email. There is um, a file sharing thing that HackerDefo pointed me at, which I think is u- useful. github.com slash marshallodev slash sherek, S H. A R I K. It's a handy little application you can install on Android or iOS or Mac or Windows and Lin- Linux. Apparently, I just installed it on on my, uh, on Android. I, I didn't think to install it onto the desktop. It launches a very simple GUI. You can select uh, a file, uh, an app, or something else, and then share it with some other device on the same network. There's another application that I had found called share to computer It's just some random application I found on FDroid. Sharec is open source as well, so you can install it over FDroid, or just go to the GitHub link and and build it from there, I guess. And as long as you're on the same network, you can share files by... Basically, it starts... A little web server and tells you what your ip address is and what port to point your browser at and then you can download that file from your little portable local web server so that seems to be the 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 real answer like the the answer for sharing files between devices that are literally like they could be sitting on top of each other like they could be literally physically exactly in the same place And apparently the answer for that is start a web server. I just, I find that inelegant, but I mean, if that's the answer, then that's the answer. And I guess I'll be happy enough with that. I still think there should just be a cable and you can plug it in and it pops up in your file manager. That would be the obvious answer for me. But for other people, I guess it's a web server. And I guess to be fair, I mean, if the protocols just don't match up and if it just doesn't make sense to be able to plug in one device into another and have it look at the files at the same time that the device is also looking at the files, which, oops, which I can, I I see that. I can see that being a problem. So maybe, you know, even if you plugged it in, like it would feel right, but I mean, frankly, it would still be wrong because you'd probably still be running some weird sort of intermediary protocol. So... You know, it, it it could be that that's just the right that's the right way to do it. Well, that's what does, Sharik does. S H A R I K. You can find that in F Droid or, as I said on GitHub, I'll put the link in the show notes. And then finally, last but not least, HackerDefo mentions Nano. He says, "I love it. I don't use it regularly, but I think it's really nice." And I 100% agree that it should be the default editor on every distro. And a distro maintainer can make can make Nano even easier and nicer if she or he wants. If I were a distro maintainer, the following would be my default nano RC. Well, by the following, hacker defo means let me get the repository up here here. Um there it is. It is github.com slash hacker defo. That's H A K E R D E F O slash Giga dash beast. So Giga Beast is the um the way that you it's a it's just an R C file, nano R C and it turns the GNU Nano Editor into a fancy and powerful editor. It's nice. It's really nice. It does things like it sets um, auto indent, it sets up a backup directory, it sets a cut from cursor, it sets line numbers, set magic. I don't even know what that is. It sounds pretty exciting, though. Set speller, aspell dash x dash c, trim blanks, white space, all kinds of things. So lots of, um, oh, and there's bindings, new key bindings here. So yeah, there's a there's a bunch of stuff. Oh colors, a color theme? Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff here that I imagine could be very, very useful, quite quite uh kind of inspiring. And so it's interesting too, because um hacker defo and then I think someone else mentioned this to me as well. I'm sorry, if someone if someone other than HackerDefo mentioned this to me. I apologize. I can't find can't find it right now. But someone mentioned, and it might maybe it was just HackerDefo, but um, the, the Nano was was sort of created to mimic Pico. And in fact, this this repository highlights that that very that very thing. It says GNU Nano was designed to be a free replacement for the Pico text editor part of the Pine email suite from the University of Washington. It aimed to, quote, emulate Pico as closely as is reasonable and then include extra functionality, close quote. That's from GNU Nano's website. So that's why Nano is the way Nano is. And to me, it feels weird because I think, okay, well, it's GNU, some text editor and i just think for cohesiveness i would have thought that the keyboard shortcuts would be very similar between those two and of course they're not at all and the reason for that is because emacs is emacs and and nano is essentially pico so for people who 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 are used to pico and and I'm, i i know that there are those people like people who went to university at some point might have you know encountered pine and pico they were very popular at one point so i can see how there'd be a whole group of people who just, as far as they know, that's what an editor ought to feel like, and so it makes a whole lot of sense to them. For me, of course, it falls flat. It just seems like an annoying, kind of awkward, wouldn't it be better if it were more like Emacs kind of thing? But I get it. I, I totally get it. And and you can't be any more intuitive than just putting the, 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 the really important keyboard shortcuts down at the bottom of the screen for everyone. I mean, you have to admit, that is really nice. I think the thing that all uh, that screws me up are the are the little things that you that you just don't think about until you you need them and you don't even think about them then you just think okay well I want to select something and so you hit a keyboard shortcut that on Emacs would totally work for you and it doesn't work for you here and so then you get confused and you just want to exit the application but I think I'll try this um uh, this nano rc file and see how it treats me for a while. I mean, I can't promise that I'm going to use it in real life for very long, because in real life, um, Emacs really is just kind of a workhorse, and it just lets me do all kinds of things very quickly. But I will—I'm going to give it a, a, a go because I'm—I'm always looking for an interesting RC file that changes an application in a substantial way. I mean, not that I always want to use that. It's just a cool thing to know you know that it's possible and you you do see things like that you see emacs obviously .emacs files you see um .screen files you see uh .vim file vimrc files that really really change things and you know sometimes annoyingly so it's just too different but other times it's it's it is different and it's exciting and it's cool because it's different and sometimes even better so i'm going to try gigabeast you should try gigabeast if you're if you're curious about how to make nano more appealing to yourself and i think that's everything all the listener feedback so next episode we're going to talk about llvm talk to you then with Earth is interrupted again.